to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, is my co-hostess, Vanessa Hogel. And down in the chat room, our chat moderator, Quarantine Ghost, modding things down there. So we have a fantastic guest coming up for you tonight. Nathaniel Gillis is a demonologist. Let me uh, read you a little bit of something about him here. Uh, he's a religious demonologist and author. After living in a haunted house, Nathaniel spent 20 years researching what what it was he encountered. Nathaniel is a founder of the preternatural epiphenomenal philosophy. He sought to redefine the nature of haunting phenomena, ghosts, and high strangeness. He's often quoted for his concept of the demonic. The reason they are playing by different rules is because they are playing a different game. So sounds like we're in for an interesting evening. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you guys. And I'm anxious and excited to get into this precious research. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just find your zen, okay? <laughs> we're, we're, we're really nice people. Um, I first want to compliment the photo that, that Mike showed because I'm a huge fan of ravens. Oh. <laughs> They're very symbolic for me, and that's uh, lovely. Um, I want to dive right in and ask what game are they playing? Yeah, absolutely. Very good question. They're ancient. Now, I want to be sure that everybody understands my position on this. My position is not that demons are fallen angels or that they are the offspring of fallen angels. Uh, we know that because the exorcistic rites that are being employed throughout Catholicism, throughout the world, were never written towards fallen angels, ever. They were written in the Torah specifically for incarnate human beings. So that said, you have two different kinds of disincarnate entities with that going on that same mindset here. The first one is one who is malevolent, but it's not a demon. In other words, it can be disincarnate in the evil and still not be a demon. A demon has a serial killer pathology. He is in a foreign belief system. Matter of fact, I was talking to another researcher the other day. If you were to sit across from it, it would have literally, it would make you feel like it is an alien because its belief system is foreign to us. And so the game that they're playing in order to understand it, we have to study the footnotes of hauntology and possession cases. The game that they're playing is foreign to us because it's ancient. And so it's almost as if some people, when they die, they molt their bodies and they, they step into a world where there's a whole new religious body. There's a whole new currency. There's a whole new belief system. And we see these, these possessing entities and this specific serial killer pathology in the way that they use like incubus cases where they will go into the homes at, at nighttime and, and rape and pillage the woman or even rape and pillage a man. And you'll see their belief system. So the reason they're playing by a different game and different rules um, is because again, it's, it's ancient. But to answer your question explicitly and specifically, the ancient understanding of ghosts, the afterlife and possession, that is the world that their mind exists in. So if, that is demon. If you're going if you're going by that logic and saying that that they they have that different game because they're essentially part right. of a different world that every now and then meshes with ours. Is that part of a more cosmic game to keep balance not at all what we're dealing with is a good question as well as far as i can tell in my research these possessing entities have they first possessed statues in antiquity in mesopotamia there was masks they would create a mask place it on the face and an entity would take control over it and would actually use it to communicate uh, matter of fact in genesis in the bible we have laban these are seriously sick entities i don't think a lot of people don't understand how how sick these entities are, they're predatory. They have, they have evolved in their knowledge and they have watched humanity evolve even biologically. Uh, so for instance, Laban was an idolater. What Laban did is he created teraphim in Genesis. That was when you would go out and find a firstborn boy, take his head off. This is gonna get dark very quickly, but you asked a very profound question. He would take, kill him, take his head off, place, a bar underneath his tongue, and then write the name of an unclean spirit. In the, in the Hebrew, it's a Ura Ara. He would place it underneath the tongue and that entity would possess the head and begin to communicate 
fluid to Laban. And so one of the things that I teach everybody that, that at least does the interviews and asks me these questions is that when you want to understand the mindset of these entities, you have to go back to biblical antiquity. And I'm not talking about the demononon or the demon by terms, but what do they believe in? Uh, for instance, I just watched a lecture at the Oriental Institute uh, because there was, what was happening was we were having um, Near Eastern um, archaeologists who were re, re unearthing and, and reviving some of these sites, and they were unearthing statues of pharaohs and different gods. And they found many of them would have broken noses and broken fingers. And it led them to have a meeting of biblical archaeologists, even, even Egyptologists. And they said, Why is it that even if the uh, area that we're excavating has never been touched before? that we go and find these entities, these beings, these statues with broken fingers and noses. They came to a conclusion, and it's a conclusion that has really enlightened my understanding of these entities because they're playing a different game. And here's the game. In, in Egyptology, in the Levant, in Mesopotamia, when a possessing entity could no longer possess the statue or it no longer wanted to, it would break off a piece of the nose or the finger or the foot as a symbol to everyone who could see with eyes, okay? That symbolism to them. That's why when you go into hauntology, when we see people who will have um, religious figurines or Virgin Marys or Bibles, specifically statues, uh, and they're melted fingers, they will literally melt the fingers so that the Virgin Mary can't do the rosary. It's not the point. That's not why they're doing it. They're still operating off of an ancient belief system. It's I, to them. I have three statues from Ireland from a priest who was uh, sanctioned and trained by the Vatican to do exorcisms. And he practiced in Michigan and then retired back to Ireland to, 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 to pass away, to die. And that was in 1939. And these statues, I have the statue, six Sharon of Obelo coins, and the last rites Bible and a bottle of holy water that have been inside the wall since 1939 all three statues are missing their heads <laughs> i didn't know that. that gives me chills it's <laughs> they're right here next to me yeah the, the question <laughs> yeah the is is see okay here's what i what i dislike about much of the demonology modern demonology is that we're trying to look into the future for answers we have to look into the past when, you, when you're dealing with a malevolent possessing entity, it's possessing for one reason only. It is disincarnate and it wants a body, period. Now, the the serial killer pathology that I have been researching, I was on the Moore show uh, a while ago and he's doing a docu-series on uh, just serial killers and everything. We got to talking about the BTK killer. Uh, the BTK killer uh, shares a lot of the same pathology. Now, what, I mean, what do I mean by pathology? It's the way these entities think, right? See, when I first, I'll, I'll get to the BTK killer in a second, but I want everybody to understand something. I grew up in Pentecostalism. And so I, I grew up with what's called systematic demonology. I inherited a belief system that said these are fallen angels, horns and hooves. And uh, the more I got into the possession research, understanding what, what many would call the Dybbuk or the Dibuk, mm -hmm. reading their possession yeah. cases, you'll find that these entities are not at all fallen angels. Their, their belief system's different. Many of them are completely biblically illiterate. It's either that or that their, their understanding of the Bible and re, their, especially religion is limited to the microcosm of time that they existed in. So if you would go to, to the Levant, let's say if you went to Baghdad, Iraq, 99% of your possessions Will, will be Islamic people who've lived and died. And what's so fascinating to me is because the, uh, you know, Israel and Levon, Iraq, they're so close together. We actually have cases where a rabbi will go and try to deliver a demoniac using Torah. And the demon doesn't even recognize it as an authority. This happened in 1999. He would go and say, okay, he went to, he went to a, um, an imam, and the imam began to use the Quran. And that entity, for some reason, well, obviously, it's the Levant, his belief system was different. And so add, that's 
and I'm, I'm not going to ramble, but no, you're fine. You're good. It's really interesting. But uh, what I did want to ask you, I really appreciate the fact that um, you are, you know, digging into uh, these these ancient belief systems, the ancient history. It's something that, um, in my research, I've done a lot uh, of research on uh, shadow people that is taking me into. Uh, the ancient past. And so what I'm curious about are the type of uh, ancient texts and the type of research that you have done in order to unearth this information. Well, I think that um, one, one research paper that really added a lot to me was what's called Disembodied Souls. It's a compendium. It's written by like six or seven different ancient Aries scholars. One of them is my favorite, favorite of mine. Her name's Esther Amori. She does a lot of work with uh, the Witch of Endor. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Uh, but I first found these entities, these serial killer entities, and I, that's only because I, I really don't have a, a language, a vocabulary to describe who these entities are. Does it make sense? Soulless. It does, yeah. It, it, it gives us yeah. something to relate yeah, to much. modern right. society, yeah. Right. And that's what happened when we try to create the demon in biblical antiquity. It was a migratory loan word mm-hmm. that they just slapped onto anything. It could be fever, famine or anything that they fear. Uh, but when I when I unearthed, I, I, I researched a paper. It's uh, It was called the Amar Manuscripts. This is from Sumer, okay? Um, and it, it was a paper about the birthing rituals of Mesopotamian mothers. Again, I can't stress it enough. In order for us to understand them, we have to understand their worldview. Yeah, you need another culture. We see uh, what's called, they have an exorcist and they have a midwife. One, the exorcist was to preserve the child in the womb and, and keep the spirits away, sorcerers specifically. And the midwife was to preserve the child so that the, the mother would be able to birth it. Now, those, those are the oldest texts that fit the pathology of these entities. Uh, first of all, your first demons, your possessing entities, were your exorcists who died were your midwives who died and i'm putting that in my second book and i want to dig too much into that but there was a betrayal in humanity even in, even in the biblical antiquity we have what's called the rephaim that are are the lineage of the nephilim the rephaim means mm-hmm. dead ancestors but it comes from the hebrew word rafa and that means a physician so what does that tell me? If anything, it tells me that these entities know exorcism in and out. They authored it. And I know it's a crazy thought, but there's a I, lot to do there. We don't have to get into that tonight. No, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, just, again, from my own research and discovering that, you know, a lot of times when, um, you know, somebody would come down with an illness, they would... You know, of course, blame that on a demon. They'd run an exorcism. But also another thing that I came across was that they also had the concept of not just, you know, evil and nefarious demons, but also the idea of good demons. So have you come across that same thing in your research? I think they had that belief system. The demon, and, and they, they have, they would offer, you know, just food, fumigants, light a candle, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that has come to me in many papers, I should say. I've been more into these malevolent entities, you know, um, but sure, that is the case. They have, it could be either or. Um, their, their primary enemy, and this is chilling for me because when I read it, I was like, oh my God, her name was Lamishtu. And um, this gets back into the fallen angel legend and lore where it's mm-hmm. liminal beings. They're beings that are in between. Lamishtu was the one who would slip into the bedroom at night take the child she's deity at the same time she's only there because she never had a kid right so even as early as the emar text we can see the blending of fallen angels and demons in disincarnate entities now um along the lines of that i think part of where a lot of of the idea gets misconstrued or or sensationalized is the word demon itself and what i have the biggest problem with is people don't research the origins of an actual name um right. the 
it is my understanding, and by all means, please correct me if I'm wrong, but demon wasn't the original term. It was daemon. And daemon is a supernatural being that, that volleys somewhere between gods and humans, right. which, again, is, is a direct contradiction to believing that they are fallen angels. Correct. But that also lends credence to what Mike has said, because nowhere in there, in that definition, does it state that they are specifically malevolent. Correct. Nor does it state they're specifically benign. So it can go either way, which lends to that balance. So maybe when you have somebody that is really in trouble or in appears to be at some points in their life in need of an exorcism, but then at other points of their lives, completely fine. Could that be a struggle between good and bad demons? No. I'm throwing some crazy stuff out no, there at no, you. I like yeah. it. I like it. It makes me think. Yeah. I don't think My so. job. I know in <laughs> Jewish mythology and, and their demonology, they would call the good possession an extra soul, a second soul, and was called an Ebur. Mm-hmm. Now, where that, there's a line that was drawn in the 16th century because until then, until what's called the age of the demoniac, that's how they thought that literally you could have someone who would possess you. And it wasn't like a malevolent entity, like you said, and it didn't really possess you. It was just you had a second energy, a second halo, a second soul in you that would inspire you. Well, that fell apart when, uh, who was it? It wasn't a life of sleep. Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria had a case where the lady had claimed that she had was possessed with a second soul. Uh, when he, he looked at her, he started just diagnosing these things. And it had turned out to be her deceased husband. Okay. And once it was, once it, it turned on her, it wasn't just an attachment. It was an inspiration. Um, he had, in real life, he would often rape her. And she was so happy that he had died because she thought, I'm free from him. And now he's possessing her. Um, and that's what really kind of blurred the lines for many of the demonologists in antiquity, 16th century and beyond. But one thing I would like to point out, because you're, you're, you're going in that direction, I think it's fascinating. There's a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Zakudo. He was a Kabbalistic exorcist. He had a woman who came to him and she was, she first had a case of an incubus. She was sleeping in the night and it, something crawled on her bed and it sexually molested her. It's awful. She thought that that was it. That was it. She maybe go gets, you know, therapy, goes gets prayer. Well, it turns out that she was possessed. And when she went to, she goes to see Dr. Uh, uh, Rabbi Sakudo. And Rabbi Sakudo sees the entity in her womb in a fetal position. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that, that begs the question. And, and it did for the exorcists at that point. They actually, they actually uh, joined a meeting. They had a conference, a congress, and said, is it possible? First of all, was she was she possessed by her husband, or was she pregnant with him, or was she pregnant by him during that act of intercourse? Wow. Okay, that is actually that's very interesting. I'm going to explain why real quick. If you go back to uh, Anne Rice and one of her books called The Witching Hour, mm-hmm. it actually ends, and she obviously is one who researches very well in what she does. It actually ends, spoiler alert, old book, with something very similar to that particular situation. And upon the birth, it actually comes out almost fully formed within moments. And that that is something to really consider. I have to ask you, when you bring up the 16th century, are you talking about like around the 1560s, 1570s? Of that the reason I'm asking that is because the book King, uh, King James first, uh, his book Demonology, and that is where I believe that a lot of people's belief systems that are still intact today stem from, and that-, that was the ramblings of a madman. It was, and I, <laughs> I I don't well what we have here though is we have in my field my discipline. King James had his demonology. He wrote that. At the same time, Catholicism was also updating their understanding of Satan. It's not just an evil, it's an agent of evil. It's an actual entity. Uh, while that's going on, Isaac Luria is creating a generation of exorcists. And his idea was, listen, 
these demons, horns and hooves do not exist. What he was dealing with, so it's fascinating. Every, the different, different theologies are going on around the world at the same time. But his idea was that when you're dealing with a possessing entity, it is, it's there for a reason. It is disincarnate. And one of his uh, rites that he would incorporate in his exorcisms is that he had a, he had an idea that was fascinating. His theory was that I can heal the spirit in the person. And if that spirit is afflicting the person with their presence, then once I heal the spirit in them, I can heal the person. Wow. Right. It, beautiful. And he's, he did it hundreds of times. He's a very gifted man. Uh, that, but that's not to say, again, there is a second entity here. It's ancient, at least in its belief systems. Okay. Now, I do believe for 100%, and I've seen it in some of my own cases, where you will have someone who will die. And for, for whatever reason, they are brought into a new understanding intellectually. It's almost as if they walk, it's like you get a new job or you, you know, and you realize the ins and outs of something. It's like, I'm just trying to understand and learn this new world. And the world they're learning is not futuristic, it's ancient. So when you encounter a true demon entity, the serial killer kind, you're talking blood rituals, give me a body, I want you to kill someone. Um, I mean, even to the point where, uh, who was it? Jeffrey Dahmer killed a victim, cremated the body, crushed the bones, and fanned the bones in a circular motion outside of his yard. Why? It's ritualistic. Right. Yep. It's very much ritualistic. And when you when you cast in that fashion, whether it is yeah. the ash of bones, whether it's salt, whatever it may be, depending on your belief system, what you're actually doing is trying to create an, epi an epicenter of power. And right. that is what I believe he was trying to do. And when you talk about the, the you know, the 1600s, what we also have to have to understand as far as the viewers are going right now, if they're thinking I'm crazy, you're talking <laughs> about the Renaissance, the birth of the Renaissance, which was all about fear and debauchery equal right. parts. And I believe personally that that type of energy feeds the very thing that you're talking about it's almost as if it takes a door from being open this much to wow. being open right yep and that's that consent aspect of possession um this last actually i think with jeffrey dahmer's only living victim so that he went into the restroom came out and jeffrey dahmer was in a trance speaking in a language he didn't understand see i think that this this the whole idea of possession is a test run Interesting. How so? That, um, okay. So it, possession, it's almost as if what we're dealing with are entities that are disincarnate and they're learning, again, they're learning a new belief system. They're learning new abilities. They're learning what matters in that dimension. Does it make sense? Actually, it really If they're coming does. from another dimension, sure, yeah. that would make sense. So, they're almost infantile in their tantrums. Oh my God. Yes. And so that's why it's almost like, it's like, okay, you're dealing with an amateur who's not as biblically literate as some of the others, and they differ. They differ in intelligence. They differ in, in almost every way a human being does. Why? Because they are. And, and what they're doing is they're introduced into a world where their values in that dimension are different than ours, and they're doing their best to relate to it and learn. Now, the reason I say it's a test run is because we have entities that the serial killer kind who don't, they're not actually possessing people. They're literally creating new bodies for themselves. Now, I'm putting this in my second book. In Ezekiel 13, Yahweh calls them soul hunters. Okay. Okay. Who will go into the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, um, that's interesting. I'm just kind of curious. Okay, so essentially, it sounds like to me you're you're calling these actually interdimensional beings, correct? Yes. Okay. What dimension are they coming from then? Or do whatever we not know? Is, whatever right. the whatever it is that follows us, or we step into at the moment that we dispossess our body. And the only way I could I had encountered this is not through. Um, understanding, you know, shadow, you know, seeing shadows or whatnot, but understanding what they believe in. That's what, what speaks to me the most. You understand? I, I can't scientifically prove that they're in another mm -hmm. dimension. 
But right now I'm dealing with a, a different belief system that even demonology is still trying to grasp our minds out. And uh, I want to say this, everybody, are you guys familiar with uh, Genesis 6, the Nephilim? Yeah. Okay. A little. Okay. Well, I, I grew up, again, in a Christian tradition that said that demons were fallen angels or the offspring of fallen angels. Mm -hmm. It never made sense because uh, when did demons um, have a male appendage? You can't. How can you procreate? You can't. The rabbis even had an issue with that. Now, what's interesting is what's called in the Midrash, which is um, extra canonical writing by the Jews, they had a guy, his name was Rabbi Hosea. And Rabbi Hosea, in talking about the Nephilim and these fallen angels, he made a very interesting reference. He mentioned, he said, these are bird-like flying spirits. Now, in order to understand what he was referring to, we have to go to Egyptology. It's called the Ba'ah. It's when a man, it's the belief that when a person dies, their soul leaves their body and flies like a bird. Now. Necessarily with wings. <laughs> exactly right. And I will say this, I'm putting this in my second book and I'm not even trying to market it right now or anything like that. It's not what I'm saying. But I will say this, when we see these UFOs in antiquity, we see reliefs and stalays of a ball with wings. That's not a UFO. That's a disincarnate soul. It was always a disagreement. But let's get Nephilim. Now, here's what we're doing. Here's what they're doing. In Genesis 6, according to what's called the Apocryphon of John, it's a Coptic manuscript written and preserved by Egyptian monks in the second century. Okay? Follow me? Uh -huh. Yes. We good? Uh -huh. Yeah. This gives us a, a window of insight to truly possessing entities. Okay? We have the amateurs. Who, who, will, who are transient, they'll come and go, they'll come and go. And then we have the masters, the hooded ones, is a reference that I often say. Now, they were in Genesis 6. This is what the Apocrypha of John says. For everybody who's watching, think about what I'm saying and, 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 and ask yourself if this sounds like an incubus case. It says that these angels first took the appearance as these wives' husbands. Wait a minute. That means that they're not married to them, right? The angels didn't marry women. No, they appeared to them as apparitions that looked like their husbands. Hmm? Uh -huh. Then they had intercourse. And the text says something that has grieved me since I read it. I mean, I have screenshot it. I printed it out. I have, I mean, it's terrifying. It says, and from the darkness, they begat children whose likeness was the image of that apparition that was in bed with her. Now, not the apparition of the husband. It's true apparition. So in other words, they take on the likeness of the husband in order to impregnate the, the human with themselves. Yes, it, this is to be a groundbreaking to give themselves a be. physical body crazy yeah. crazy now now the, how how did they do it again if you go into the umar text umar text rather the manuscripts one of the fears of the mother who was pregnant with child was of lamishtu lamishtu killed babies in the womb that's what she that's what she craved she was bloodthirsty but this gives another clue as to what they did in Genesis 6, and here's why. Because they said that Lamishtu was terrifying to the point that many of their exorcistic bowls were, uh, they would do rituals against actually seeing her face because they feared, and they've had many cases where if you saw her for her, she would literally terrify you so much that they feared losing the child in the womb. But, there's also a, a, one of the midwife texts says this. It says that these entities that were in the Emar text, these entities that are in Genesis 6, what they did is they came to them as their husbands to get consent. During intercourse, at the moment of impregnation, again, these are ancient beliefs, they would, they would change their appearance to their true apparition, what they really look like and stare into the face of the woman 
Why? Because in Egypt, Egyptology, they believe that whatever the woman was focused on at the moment of impregnation, like you said, she will create the material body of in her womb. Now, now we're going to unite. See, those are that's the true possessors right there, guys. It's not trains you. I want a body for me that looks like me. So it's almost as if these possession cases right now, even throughout history, these are entities that are amateur and, and they're learning something. It's almost like they're being educated by others. Let, let wow. me ask you something. Because um, you're talking about that part of Genesis, we we're talking about the Nephilim, you're talking about the, the watchers in, in that part. Um, there's a lot of people today that think that some of these entities were giants. What's your take on that philosophy? They were. I'll, I'll go back to Ezekiel 13. There's a phrase that Yahweh calls these entities, and it's not just soul hunters. He says that you take the patches of skin off of victims and they sew it onto their own flesh. Why? They're creating a social skin, a second self. Um, matter of fact, if you go back to Fritz Kramer in his book, The Red Fez, he talks about the social skin and how these ancestors would possess an entity and have them scar their flesh. And through the scarifications, that possessing entity would mold that body in its image. Now let's get back to the giants. The reason the giants play a big role in this is if you go to Ezekiel 13, Yahweh says that you sew patches of flesh onto those of every stature. It's not, it's a mistranslation. They, they believed, these entities, they believed that the tallest among them were, their, were to be their priests. They believed that they were the more gifted ones. Okay. And they believed that the taller you were, the greater your physical stature, the greater you were at what was called soul trapping. Now, if that's what they believed, why would they want bodies that look like giants, right? Because they would be in control. Exactly. Yeah. They created a race of priests, physicians, and exorcists. They know of themselves. All exactly. They created an army, literally, that army. would defend the very thing that they were supposed to be fighting against. Yes. Now, and this is this gets really deep. And I hope I'm not rambling. There's just so much to cover. No, it's all good. Okay. Ezekiel 13, it says that in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, it said that these entities, these soul hunters, were creating what's called an external soul. So what the first thing they would do is they would go into someone's home, like a serial killer, they would, while they're sleeping, they would take their life, carve out a piece of their flesh and apply it to their own spirit to create an epidermal essence. It's called an external soul. When I first heard that, I thought, oh my God, that's already crazy, right? It's already just incredibly alarming. But it wasn't until I picked up a book by James Frazier and, uh, it's called the red the golden bow and in it he talks about these giants of antiquity the warriors and their modus operandi in a battle what they would do is they at the moment of death when they knew they're about to be killed they didn't want to die so they would dispossess their body place it in someone else to survive that's why they that's why the apocrypha of john says they made copies of bodies in Genesis 6. I'll tell you what's happening. They're preparing for a war. What kind of war? I think it's it's either... It's, I think that, that when we read, okay, that like there's a war going on in the heavens, I think that when we, we read that through a Greek mindset. We read that so completely detached from Eastern traditions. We're thinking angels... We need to be thinking entities who have created so many second selves that you will have an army. You could have 20 bodies and only have one entity because it's using them as a way to stay alive. 
the only reason they would do that, right? If they just wanted to possess, they could possess one body that looked like them. They're preparing for a war, and it, and it may be with God, a God, or angels. I don't know, but I know that these entities are not angels. Man, I, I know I'm rambling. I'm so sorry. No, you're not. You're not. Uh, I do have several questions uh, down here from the chat, so I do want to get to to some of these, and I know Vanessa has some other things that uh, she wants to ask you, but... Um, they're preparing for this war and this first question here from judy wilson kind of plays right into it um do you think there are more demons out there today or do you think they're fewer and far between it's a very good question i think that the serial killer demon and i still don't have the vocabulary <laughs> yet i'm working on it i think that there are far less of those entities the matured ones the hooded ones the entities that they're far more intelligent than anything we could fathom. I think there are far less of those. But as far as just regular evil entities that possess people, yeah. The attachments, yeah, yeah. And I think it comes from people who do not understand the afterlife, people who've had trauma in their life, and when they die, they they inherit what I call the inherited self. And now they're dealing with the backside, they're dealing with the darkest versions of them. And so they possess people, but they're, again, their belief systems are different. That person wants healed. They need help. This other entity doesn't care about helping anything or, or wanting any. It's after, it's after a second self. A okay. quick question. I have to touch back on something that you had brought up before. The BTK killer, Dennis Rader was his actual name. Um, what many people don't know is I lived in Wichita, Kansas for almost 25 years. And Dennis Rader was at my father's home. Um, he worked for the parks department, I believe, and was called out to get a raccoon out of the window well. And for somebody who would bind, torture, and kill women, he was the biggest puss when it came to that. And he could not do it. He could not do it he cowered in response to having to go after an animal and try to get it out and that is the only thing that i'm having difficulty reconciling right. is if if he was at all possessed by something that could enable him to do the absolutely horrific things that he did how do we reconcile that other part of him how do we do that okay uh, let's let's just try to define evil, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously. Uh, if you go into a supermax prison, you'll have people who have, or child killers, they would never touch a woman. You'll have people who have victimologies. They have their own preferences, their own belief systems, their own rituals. And so when we, we look at these different entities, I do not believe that the BTK killer was doing everything he did for him. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, matter of fact, um, one of the things that, that, that we were, Kevin Moore and I were talking about on his show was that he said, literally, I did everything for this entity. Now, I'm not saying that serial killers are innocent. That's not what I'm saying, obviously. I hope everybody understands that. There's a mutual consent. There's a covenant created between the two. Now, let's talk about possession, um, specifically the what I call the self-seeing entity. Uh, in the BTK trial, they asked him about his last victim was the little girl in the family. He took her downstairs and just awful from the name. But yes. they asked him, where were you at in proximity to her? And instead of him remembering, it was crazy how he did it. And I couldn't believe it. I noticed it. But when he went to gather his memory to understand where he was in proximity to her, he immediately puts his hands behind his back and stages himself like he staged her. Why? God, it's chilling. Why? Okay. Yeah, that's actually, well, Why? because whatever it was, if we're following your line of thinking, whatever it was that was possessing him was putting him in the position of the victim. And he, right. yes. And he knew that the, the, the best way to remember the most to look through her eyes now that is not a strange phenomenon it really isn't i know it's new in psychology uh but it's a self-seeing entity when you go to like i said fritz kramer the red fez he went to haiti 
And another alarming thing that these people told him about the, they had a guy that was possessed, you know, and everything. He said, listen, he said, we're, they, they said, Fritz, we're going to go see this guy. He's possessed with an ancestor. And he said, okay, guys, he says, so you want to go and see him. He's a brilliant, man. They said, no, 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 no. We don't want to go see him. They said, what do you, I thought that's what we're doing. He said, no, we don't go see the ancestor because we want to see the ancestor. We go to see the ancestor so that we can be seen by the ancestor. So these entities are self-seeing. Interesting. That's why. These, Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> I do have a, f uh, a few more questions here from the chat uh, I do want to get to. Uh, Sharon Lane is asking, are the jinn from Islamic legend in this category of demons? They are in a very unique way. If you go to Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, their traditions all stem, obviously, from Levant, Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. But their issue with the jinnah, the jinn, is that these entities can procreate. Demons can procreate. Number one, we had a problem with that in... Christianity doesn't make any sense. Secondly, they can have their own belief systems and they have jobs. See how this starts to sound like men and women, just normal people. They have, you know, you could have a Muslim jinn, you can have a Jewish jinn who is literally Jewish, but he's also a jinn, even though the jinn is defined by Islamia. What we're dealing with are three Abrahamic religions. The, the Abrahamic mm -hmm. religions are trying to comprehend this darkness in this afterlife phenomenon. And they're doing it in very human terms, but they're applying it to fallen angels. And it, it just really falls apart when you get into the research. And that's not to be disrespectful to all three of them. It's just, you know, the research has to be true. So it's almost like there are different races of... Yeah. Um, yeah. This goes back to the shadow people. It's almost as if that some entities, especially the shadow people, that they're devolving. You understand? When a body dies, uh, it, it, you know, it goes back to the earth. Ashes and ashes, dust, dust. But where does the spirit go? These shadow figures, it's almost as if they're devolving into nothings. Okay, this is interesting because I've done a lot of research on shadow people. So what is your take on a shadow person? Uh, I think that at least the entities that I have encountered, this is not all encompassing. But I will say this, in the Apocryphon of John, it says that they mixed the bodies, these, these copies of bodies, these second selves, with a spirit of darkness or a dark spirit. Okay. So I think that, honestly, I think that if you, if you saw a shadow person, it's a naked soul. It has no body. It's without form no features and it's void uh and i think again that to answer your question i feel that at least some of these are in a process of devolving okay that's interesting and i guess it it would depend on because you're talking about a lot of different belief systems here like right. the egyptian uh belief system seven different parts of the soul the shadow is part of that um, right. You've kind of touched on the Egyptians here as well. So it, it is all really fascinating to try to put the pieces together, especially when you start going back that far into history. It's truly fascinating. It's, it's, it's the research, the discipline itself. It's far darker and far more fascinating than pea soup. I mean, we can get into scarifications <laughs> on the flesh. Why are they employing symbolism and hauntings? Why is it that the, I mean, my God, we, we go into a house or even people that have been possessed, there's scarifications on their bodies. What does that symbol mean? It doesn't mean anything to us. Why is it called? For instance, Father Sinistroy of Amino had a case where a lady was not possessed, but she was molested and raped by uh, an incubus. Hmm. She had died and they peeled back her eyelids and found scarifications underneath them. Wow. He's not marking them for us, right? It's almost as if they're marking the soul or the body of the person that they have damaged right. so that others will know what their conquests are. Branding. That's actually the way. Branding. Yes, it's branding. That's actually the way that I, exactly that I right. would take now, it. Now, who's he branding it to? Not us. No. God, this is chilling, right? Mm -hmm. I always get worked up because it's just. It's like notches oh, on yeah. a bedpost. You know, it's, it's like the more that you get, 
the higher ranking and whatever their hierarchy right. is, the higher you go up. Yeah. It's well, like a fraternity of serial killers. Speaking of hierarchy, let me ask you, um, over the course of centuries have been a number of goetic memoirs that have been written to, to kind of spell out the hierarchy. There's the different sigils and seals. Um, you know, do you believe that those are legitimate or are they legend developed over time to try to explain this phenomenon? The latter. Okay. The latter. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because I, when I first got into this discipline, you know, my demonology didn't fit because I was given descriptions of demons, not definitions. And so first thing that was alarming to me in this research was that a, a demon isn't what it does. You know, uh, I mean, let's get into let's get into what's called Eros and Evil. It's a book by R.E.L. Masters. And he goes into the medieval period and talks to witches and not he records not he doesn't talk to them, honestly, but he records their their cases. And many of the demons that they encountered were circumcised. What? Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Right? Montague Summers, it's crazy. Montague yeah. Summers records a, more than a few cases of his. Oh my God. Where the witch would, and I say, you know, she, the practitioner, whatever. Uh, God. She would encounter a demon, and the demon would have three male appendages. They're all metal. Interesting. Right. No. I would run. I'm not going to lie. Okay, it's not my. That's that, that, that's not my idea of a party. Right. Exactly. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't theirs either, and but they were being used as yes. lovers. Mm -hmm. uh, so so again, if we look at the pathology here, not titles, not the hierarchy. Let's talk. I mean, let's look at the names. Bl's above. Okay. What is that really? Ba. What's that? That's the Egyptian soul that flies. Beelzebub, what? It's Baal. It's the Lord, not a Lord of the flies, right? If we're talking about Lord of those who fly, right? That's okay. a discarnate entity. So if you break it down to the origin yes. of the prep of the 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 prefix of the name, Correct. then you can actually figure out what it is and Correct. what its role is. Exactly. What it believes in. Uh, especially, like I said, when you go into a crime scene, you have to reverse engineer. A lot of these criminal profilers have done it. That's how they've solved their case. It's fascinating. They reverse engineer the psychological makeup, worldview, and belief system of the predator based upon its victims and what it leaves. That That's interesting that you say that. One of the most profound documentaries I ever saw was about a serial killer called The Iceman. Yes. And this is about, yeah. about 1980, somewhere along killing? those lines. They, uh, he is, if anybody can go back and watch this, he is the definition of a soulless, yeah. walking, talking person. There is nobody in there. There's right. He was a killing machine without remorse way more than a sociopath oh yeah and and, way he, more. and brutally intelligent extremely intelligent right. so i mean okay how about this when you go back into the levant mesopotamia the earliest beliefs concerning blood was that life was in it i'm not saying that just because the bible says that but they believed that the literal soul the essence was in the blood now if you want to go look at a really <laughs> Kuklinski was pretty, pretty, pretty uh, intense, but there's a guy out there named Arthur Shawcross. Shawcross was a weird dude. And he was talking about some of his victims and the uh, interviewer asked him a question, you know, why is it this kind of victim? Or, you know, why, why, why pick this person and not the other? And he says, well, he goes, I have all kinds of victims. I have no preference. Right now we're seeing the pathology of these possessing entities, these like the real possessing entities. Not your amateurs. He said, I have many victims, many ethnicities, many ages, because blood is blood. Okay. Wow. Blood, see, we, there is there is an intelligence that is staring the discipline of demonology in the face right now. And our job is not to look away it's not to go in there and try to say, okay, they're merging science with bodies and ufology. They're not. 
they're they're they are they are aware of powers, rituals, formulas, value systems that are completely alien to us. It's the same, but I can find it in Mesopotamia. Right. Let me uh, let me bring us around to a question from Tom McNicholas, and I'm going to uh, preface this with, um, you know, we we talk about demons. Uh, evil entities, these sorts of things. It frightens a lot of people. People want to know how we can protect ourselves. And so Tom McNicholas asked that question, can demons be contained or protected by prayer? Is he froze? I think he froze. He froze. There we go. There we go. Yep, I was wondering what happened. All right, did you catch the question or I need to re-ask it? No, sir, I didn't. All right. Um, I'm going to, I guess, preface it again. So, a lot of people, um, you know, they hear the stories about demons. They, of course, it's, it's frightening hearing about these different evil spirits. So our uh, chatter down in uh, the chat room there, Tom McNicholas asked, can demons be contained or protected by prayer? I froze again, brother. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> See, I think they're inter- trying to interfere okay. here. They so. are. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So All right. What was the question? I'm sorry. The, the question from Tom McNicholas, can demons be contained or protected by prayer? You can protect yourself, yes, and others. Yep. Uh, there's many amulets you can do. There's many rituals you can do. Um, but I will say this: the main the main thing about this is do not give it consent. Uh, most of the cases that I have been involved in recently were people who were being groomed emotionally, spiritually by these entities. Uh, and so, one way to to fight against that is to possess yourself, say, this is me, I am me, and really try to deal with anything that you think you lack. Does it make sense? Like if it's depression, you gotta deal with it. You have to to fill the voids in you. I don't care how you do it. I mean, obviously not bad things, but that's one of the ways these entities will mold you. They will lay on you and they will conform to you before you conform to it and before you conformed it uh it will groom you looking for consent and the way it does is it you know do you feel lesser than i do with a lot of suicide cases people that fight suicide why that entity is trying to get you do they seek a victim mentality then somebody that is, is e- yeah somebody that is easier to break down correct yeah consent will you let me in um i had a case not too long ago that they just sentenced the one of the 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 um accomplices it was a murder case when i got in the home i knew that the daughter who had assisted in the murder i felt suicide hmm. i wrote it down and i i just i could see scarifications and stuff on her wrist i saw it i talked to the dad and i said so what happened prior to the murder because the daughter had murdered the mother what happened to her she instantly just got shut off from the world she started sleeping more just completely depressed, emotionless. Got got connected to another girl who was bigger and older, and they planned to kill the parents. Wow. See, here's what's fascinating: that entity who we turned it turned out to be a, a disincarnate entity named I won't give the name, but it was crazy, crazy case. But that entity wanted to do something, but he needed someone literally to go downstairs in the middle of the night and open the door, which is what the girl did, right? It couldn't open its own door. He had to possess her to open the door and then possess the other girl to stab and kill. During the actual murder, there was a male voice, a guttural, dark, disembodied voice coming out of her, laughing. See, again, consent. Because consent might not end with you. Yeah. That's what I tell everybody. So Rick, Rick Gabbard asks, uh, he's wanting to learn more about the subject. So what would be the best book on demonology to be able to learn this? I mean, you have your own book out there as well. So, Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm writing my first book on demonology right now. Uh, this is called Spirit Possession, Possession in Judaism. Okay, I'm going to put it up here for you guys. Now that is not all encompassing. It's not all of demonology, 
okay? It's it's not Catholic demonology. It's certainly not King James. But uh, do what? I just I giggled <laughs> because of what you and I were talking about. Well, I couldn't help. You know, it. people think that James is it. That's like dark. No, no, he <laughs> uh, was nuts. Yeah. So so yeah, this would be a good start. It's called Spirit Possession of Judaism: Cases and Context for the Middle Ages to Present. Now. I'll put the link up on my website to, or my, on my Instagram or my social media, Facebook especially, for this book and show everybody where you find it. It's a start. What this will do is this will redeem or actually deliver anybody from thinking that these entities are fallen angels. It's not in the data sample, guys. You know, it's just not there. These are very human entities. Some have different belief systems. Some have different memories. Some need help. Matter of fact, Jaime Vital is an exorcist. He was Isaac Luria's prodigy. And Jaime Vital had a dream one night that his favorite student who had died came to him in the dream and said, Master, I need help over here. I need, I need your assistance. I'm going to come to you tomorrow. Jaime Vital gets up, works his day, cooks dinner, gets ready for bed thinking, must have been the beans I ate last night, right? No. There's a knock at the door, he opens his chateau, and there's a mother with a 12-year-old girl. And here we go. This is in this book. This blew my entire understanding of demonology away. The little girl looks at him and says, Master, I told you I would come to you today. Hmm. I need your help. Wow. Interesting. Hmm. That's chilling. That's chilling. <laughs> so, um, let me also grab another one here from the chat. Uh, Sharon Lane, do you think the Viking gods were a part of these uh, interdimensional beings? Vikings and all of them, yeah. Yes. Odin they and Freya? Are... I'm sorry? Odin and Freya? These are legends, right? They're what's called culture heroes. Now, I didn't understand it either until I began to look into the Rephaim. See, we think, especially in biblical antiquity, that angels fell. Angels don't fall. People die, right? And when they die, you have what are called ancestral cults who would deify their dead. And that's where we're referring to deceased ancestors. So, yes, that does play into it. The question, they do play into it. Uh, but what we have here are a different, it's almost like a convergence of different legends. And the, the, they're all, it's all the same legend. Beings died and they were elevated. That's why they have human attributes and human desires. They're not fallen angels. They're not a sin. They're, they're just they're humans who, for whatever reason, and this gets back into the ancient belief of ancestor. Not everybody that dies becomes an ancestor. An ancestor is an elevation. And that's where you get titans and all of these ideas of people who live in the clouds. Why? The idea is they fly, right? It's, it's, all, it's all mythology but it's all intimately, intimately connected to the afterlife. And once demonology as a discipline understands that, then that will begin to filter our own research. Yeah, and a lot of these, uh, you see the similar stories from culture to culture over the millennia, you know, originating ancient Mesopotamia, see some of the same stories in the Greek culture, and then the Vikings as well, and then uh, Rome, the Roman legends, and so... They, they all seem to play in, in together. And there's there's grain of original truth in there, which it seems you've right. done your research to to discover. Yes, sir. It's it's one and the same. It's, you know, culture heroes, different mythologies. What you have here is an event in history where you have people who are still trying to understand the afterlife. I mean, my God, if, if, if I'll tell you what, if fever and famine is a demon, what are you going to do to cast it out? Right. Right. So some of these were real entities. There were real fears. Lamishtu was real. But uh, they're all witnessing the same event. Even in your Coptic manuscripts, your Egyptian, they saw, they know the same event. Uh, and they're looking at it through different traditions. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. All right. We are at our hour mark. Nathaniel, this has been extremely interesting. Really, I want to thank you for coming on the show. But how can everybody uh, find you, get more information uh, about you in uh, your upcoming book? Okay. Well, you can get on my, my website. It's called njgillis.com. 
I am on Facebook and Instagram as the Nathaniel J. Gillis. Uh, you can, I, I have a YouTube channel, but there's nothing on it. So don't get on there. But <laughs> all my, honestly, I had, it was so funny. The other day I had like two subscribers. I'm like, listen, I don't have any videos, guys. I felt really bad. I just, honestly, I don't, I don't have time. You know, yeah. um, I really want to get this book out because I think that it will add value to my discipline and it will really help us fight. But that's how you guys can get a hold of me uh, and, and see my interviews and my social media. All right. Fantastic. This has been a uh, absolute treat. And, you know, there's so much to really Thanks dive sir. into here. And uh, I know, we'd love I to know. have you back at some point and, and dive even further. Okay. Thanks I'll for letting me that. work out my brain. Oh, hey, thank you. <laughs> Same to you. It was, I, I really enjoyed it. You asked some really profound questions. I really liked it. Thank you. That's my Fantastic. job. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Nathaniel, have a great night. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.